You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today, my guest is Danielle Del Sol, the Executive Director of the Preservation Resource Center here in New Orleans. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Well, I am the relatively new Executive Director of the Preservation Resource Center. I was hired last February to take on this role, and I'd been at the organization for seven years already, first as the assistant editor and then as the main editor of Preservation in Print magazine, which is our monthly periodical that comes out of the PRC. Um, So I was thrilled to be chosen and to take on the task of taking the PRC into its new era. Mm -hmm. So your background is in journalism. It is. So how did you, what, how did the transformation come about? Mm -hmm. How did you get from that to preservation? Well, it happened rather organically. I was living in Little Rock, Arkansas and working for a newspaper there. And I was doing real estate and business reporting and just happened to stumble upon a group of people who were renovating homes in some of Little Rock's historic neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And they were so passionate about what they were doing. The homes were so beautiful. The neighborhoods had so much potential that I could see. And it was so frustrating to me because I was simultaneously covering the growth of bedroom communities 20 and 30 miles outside of the city of Little Rock. And so here we were building, you know, building suburbia, expanding suburbia while these inner city historic neighborhoods just kind of sat. And it made no sense to me. It was very frustrating, but I loved reporting on these people's renovation projects. So I later moved to North Carolina and worked at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and was lucky enough to take some urban planning classes there just for fun Mm because if you work there you get to take classes there and it was there that I really learned what a robust field historic preservation is that it's an academic endeavor that it's a professional endeavor I didn't really realize that before I thought Mm -hmm. it was just a personal hobby of some kooky people (laughs) (laughs) Um, and once I realized that it was legit I was all in so um, from there I applied to Tulane's Master of Preservation Studies program and the rest is history. Mm Yeah, that, I feel like that's a common theme you hear from a lot of people, what you were saying about the the expansion of the new sort of suburb areas and in the middle, the old parts of downtown sort of fall into mm-hmm. disrepair. That seems to be a pretty common theme, mm-hmm. um, not just here, but, you know, everywhere. Yeah. I like hearing people's stories from people that have lived in other places, mm-hmm. you know, like you and, and Leah Solomon did work in other places before they came here, and you can compare those those two Mm-hmm. ideas and see what other cities are doing and it's really that that story has a happy ending because Little Rock figured it out mm-hmm. and where when I lived there a decade ago decade plus was longer than that so close to 15 years ago the week during the weekends the downtown was just dead mm-hmm. it was all shut down because no one was going to work now it is such a vibrant downtown the historic neighborhoods are hopping they've figured this whole preservation mm-hmm. and Main Street thing out and they're it, it's a it's great the city has really really reawoken yeah those are the kind of stories that are that are good to hear Mm -hmm. yeah okay 
So currently, um, after all this journalism, writing, MPS program, like you said, you are are the new executive director of the Preservation Resource Center. Mm -hmm. For those of our listeners that are not here in New Orleans and may not be familiar with what the organization does, can you explain what the PRC is and what it is that you're trying to do here? Absolutely. The PRC is an organization that has a multi-pronged approach to how our, our mission is to preserve historic buildings and neighborhoods of this city, to protect them, to make sure that they're here in perpetuity, that the unique culture that is fostered by this very special architecture lives on through these buildings and the people who live there. And we do that in a multitude of ways. We have many programs that seek to address different preservation problems and opportunities in different ways. So, for example, we have a historic easements program, and we hold over 120 easements on buildings, mostly in New Orleans, but some are in other parts of Louisiana. And we're the only easements holder in this region. And this is literally the best way that you can protect a historic building forever. Mm -hmm. An easement attaches onto the deed of a building. So no matter who owns it, the owner has this duty to keep the building's exterior, its facade, in pristine condition forever. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is we go out and monitor these buildings once a year and make sure we do a checklist of all the different possible things. And and a homeowner will get a letter, a building owner will get a letter every year saying, okay, we found these problems, you need to fix them. And so we're thrilled every time we get a new easement. And this year we got several. Mm -hmm. It it was a really a banner year for us um, because that's literally the best way to protect a structure forever. We were founded as a resource center. So the idea is that while there are Some buildings that we can and have renovated, we've renovated lots of buildings, actually. I shouldn't say it like that. We've renovated hundreds and hundreds of buildings, and our Rebuilding Together New Orleans program has helped, has done renovations on over 1,500 buildings. So we have made a huge impact physically on the structures of New Orleans, but we know that we can't save everything. Mm -hmm. And so we were established in 1974 to be a true resource. So the idea was we'll do what we can, but we want to empower everyone else with knowledge to do these things themselves too. We want to empower people to become homeowners, to buy historic buildings, to know how to fix them up, to give them the tools to fix them up, to be the place where they can call and ask questions. We have a library here where people can come read about, you know, all aspects of renovations, about all aspects of, you know, architecture and history of New Orleans. And we advocate to keep as many of these buildings in place as possible for people to come by and renovate. And so while educating the public and fostering an appreciation for our historic neighborhoods is a huge part of what we do, being advocates is another huge part. So, you know, when there's a building up for demolition that's historic that we think can stay there, we're there to stand up for it. Mm-hmm. When there's a historic building that has a renovation proposed that we feel is inappropriate, we're there to speak against it. And there's a lot of that pressure now. Mm-hmm. You know, post-Katrina, property values have risen precipitously. It's changed the whole market. And the New Orleans that we live in today is so different than Absolutely. the New Orleans of decades past. So there are new problems here that we as preservationists have to address. And we have to do that in new ways. And people get it. I mean, we were successful. We've mm-hmm. been successful. We convinced people <laughs> that historic buildings are valuable, that you should want to live in historic neighborhood. We did it. But now we have this whole new set of problems because no one can afford to live in a historic right. home. And the pressure is being put on, example, for example, our downtown where, you know, we have on Canal Street, for example, we have three and four story height 
has, you know, for generations, that's how tall the buildings are. There's now so much pressure to build up because mm-hmm. that's so successful. It's such a vibrant commercial corridor and people want more density there because mm-hmm. they want more, you know, units for hotels or for apartments because it's so successful. But if we start building up and we start changing the scale of the neighborhood, will it be Canal Street anymore in the way that we know and love it? Mm-hmm. And so it's really a delicate balance that we as advocates have to promote. We, like I mentioned before, we do physical bricks and mortar work through our Rebuilding Together New Orleans program, which gives free home repairs to low-income homeowners. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly important. And for years, um, our Operation Comeback program has acquired blighted properties and fixed them up and resold them. Um, That program is actually going to be sunsetting in the coming years. okay. This is part of a new strategic plan that the PRC board approved actually just last month. So we're brand new mm-hmm. and debuting these new plans. But because of rising real estate prices, Operation Comeback isn't able to be as catalytic in certain neighborhoods as we once were. Right. So the program started on Lower Magazine Street, where we acquired a bunch of buildings on Magazine and Ray Street. And for anyone who lives here now, you can't imagine Magazine right. Street being blighted. It's just, you know, you can't even fathom it. It's so vibrant now. But back then, it was scary. Mm-hmm. And PRC did a whole row of homes on Lower Magazine Street, revitalized them, and sold them to new homeowners. And look at it today. Mm-hmm. Same with General Taylor Street in Uptown. We purchased the whole, I think it was 600 block of General Taylor Street. There were eight shotgun houses. They were all blighted. And... Before they even finished the construction, two of them fell down. So that's how blighted they were. But they did the whole row. They got homeowners for each of the homes. And now can you imagine acquiring eight buildings (laughs) on one street uptown? Absolutely not. It's impossible. So we're going to shift the program to really bring, we're going to bring it back. But we need to figure out exactly how. Mm -hmm. And the thought that what we're thinking right now is there are new problems in the city. Like I mentioned before, affordability being one of them. Mm -hmm. There are still 30 to 40,000 blighted properties in this city. That's an enormous amount. And we have an affordability crisis. Is there some way we can marry the preservation of these blighted buildings, the revitalization of these blighted buildings, and make them into affordable homes for people, mm-hmm. to allow people to buy houses, to build equity. I think there is, and we're going to try and figure that out. Mm-hmm. So Operation Comeback is going to be paused for a while, but we're going to bring it back better than ever, and that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Finally, we just we are advocates on and educators through our social media, our mag, print magazine, which has been in print since 1975, and our website. I mean, we... We educate people in person through classes, by going to neighborhood groups and teaching them about historic buildings. We teach kids in classrooms. But our magazine is literally out in the cafes, the doctor's offices, and people's mailboxes every month, bringing preservation to their front door. And we feel that's a really important endeavor. Okay. So uh, let's step back a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I just do I do want to touch on the history of, of how the the PRC got started. So mm-hmm. I was reading that it began in 1974 mm-hmm. and sort of in that boom of when a lot of the preservation stuff was was coming up mm-hmm. in the, the mid to late 70s programs here and national programs were mm-hmm. were being implemented. And and it's it started as I'm trying to remember what I read. <laughs> it was just it was is a program of the Junior League of New Orleans. That's right, yeah. the Junior League. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. So, and then from there, it's grown into obviously this sort of multi-armed thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you're, you are the fourth director. That's right. So there have been more U.S. presidents than there have been <laughs> directors of the Preservation Resource Center. Um, when the Junior League provided the seed funding for the Preservation Resource Center, they provided funding for three years and said, after that, you're going to have to figure out how to make it on your own. And luckily they did. Mm-hmm. So Larry Schmidt was our first director and he was here for a few years. Anne Masson was our second director. Mm -hmm. And then Patty Gay came in in 1980 and was here until 2017. Jack Davis came in as interim for a few months and led the director search. And then they chose me. And so here I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Six months, right? Mm -hmm. Six months search. Yeah, Yeah. That's what I read. That's that's pretty impressive. But I guess you kind of have to, when it's something, you know, an organization that is so vital to to the preservation of the city you know I think a lot of people think about the VCC and some other groups and I don't know if the PRC is always or if they really understand everything that the organization does they know you do the happy hours and they mm-hmm. know you do the holiday home tours the, a big yeah, one the yes home tours mm-hmm. and things like that but they may not know like on on boots on the ground level that right. there's actual physical con- construction done that you're sending people to city hall meetings mm-hmm. um you know for the advocacy part of it so it there's just so there's so much <laughs> it really is and, and bragging about ourselves enough is a, is a problem for us because people don't know they might think that we're a fluffy group because we put on the, the holiday home tour in the garden district every year and we have a fabulous instagram account that has really pretty houses every day mm-hmm. so you know it it's it we really try and help people understand how we make tangible change happen in this city and how we really do protect and promote the protection of these these buildings that, that they're the reason we live here. And mm-hmm. they're the reason that 18 million people came to visit New Orleans last year. Right. That is very real. Without that economy and without these residents who are so bought into a way of life here, what would New Orleans be? Mm-hmm. And you were talking about the, you know, bringing back the density, mm-hmm. uh, you know, making things affordable again. And, and it kind of touches on what you were talking about, Canal, which we'll talk about a little bit again later. Those mm-hmm. The three and four story buildings that are vacant on mm-hmm. the top couple of floors. Mm-hmm. And it's like, do you need to build this huge hotel when you have these buildings right. that are essentially empty? Right. Three-fourths of them is empty and could be used for something else. So, yes, totally. Yeah. I think about that a lot when we drive down there. It's just It just boggles my mind that those it's such a valuable space Mm -hmm. and they're just sitting there empty just not doing anything just hanging out or any of those vacant lots in the french quarter that are just you know Mm -hmm. just been there forever yeah it's shocking mm -hmm. um so i did want to talk about one of the current projects that y'all been working on over the last year i guess or so Mm -hmm. which is the pontchartrain park national register listing Mm -hmm. and the pontchartrain park is an african-american neighborhood here in new orleans Mm -hmm. one of the first i believe sort of suburban Mm -hmm. neighborhoods of of its type in in the country Mm -hmm. right and what the PRC is doing to work with them to help with the National Register nomination. We were really honored to be approached by the Neighborhood Association president and their the head of their historic committee. They decided that that their neighborhood is historically significant and they wanted the whole country to know. Mm-hmm. And we agreed completely yeah. because you're right. It was the first African-American style kind of planned suburb suburban community in the nation. And... So it was significant for the city, but it was nationally significant for its time. 
And a lot of, it still has a wonderful building stock of, you know, homes that were built in the 50s when the neighborhood was established through the 60s. There, it suffered mightily in Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of loss there. But there is still the historic integrity, we believe, of the neighborhood, enough so to put it on the National Register. So the nomination process has involved surveying every building in the neighborhood as mm-hmm. as it does and so that was over 800 structures um, we were lucky enough to have some volunteer help um, a young man named Austin Lukes came came to intern with us and ended up spearheading this whole project for us we're really thrilled to be working with him and then we ended up getting some Tulane students undergraduate students actually who were in a service learning class led by Dr. Carol Reese who is an architecture professor and an expert on Poncho Train Park and its oh, history. Wow. Um, she found out what we were doing and she said, we want to help. And yeah. they did. And we were so thrilled because that was a massive lift mm-hmm. lift to survey, you know, which means pictures, but also do a an inventory essentially of, of each house and, and check off its condition and, you know, the style and when, you know, approximately when you might think have think it might have been built so it was a lot of work Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we are nearing the end and so at this point we are going to send everything to the shippo and it gets reviewed this summer to see whether or not it will be nominated to the park service for national register status Mm -hmm. we're really excited we know that this is going to go through and we're really honored to be working in this project with them Mm -hmm. um separately there's another site of african-american significance that we were approached about putting on the national register just a few months ago and we're really excited about that one too the valina c jones school is an empty but beloved school building in the seventh ward okay um that has been decade that for dec for a decade or so has been empty but it has an alumni network like you wouldn't believe of people who just who came up in the school. It was truly a neighborhood institution where the teachers knew everyone in the neighborhood and everyone in the neighborhood knew the teachers, the you know the faculty, the students. It was very much a community place um, and bred leadership. The students that went there ended up being leaders in their community and um, and you know two separate community groups actually approached us to put it on the national register in the hopes of bringing the school back to life in, in some capacity. And mm-hmm. so we're thrilled to be working with them on that. Mm-hmm. So it, but there's no plans for it to be restored at this point. There's really nothing going on with it. It's well, just... actually both, both community groups have different plans of what oh. they want to see happen to the building. Okay. And so, you know, we're thrilled that both of them reached out to us. And what we've kind of said is it's up to you all in your community to decide what the best use is for the building, but we're, we're so honored to be working with you all to meet your end goal, you know, whatever, whichever one ends up coming to life. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully at least the National Register nomination can be done so there is that permanent record of mm-hmm. the space, even if it's not able to be saved or reused for any reason. Hopefully that'll be... That'll be able to get done. It will. Like the other yeah, part. and it's an EA Christie building. Oh, right. And okay. it's it's in wonderful condition. Mm-hmm. So there's no doubt in my mind that us putting it on the National Register, it will be utilized for historic tax credits, and that's awesome. Yeah. So um, it, something will happen to it. I just don't know what <laughs> yet. <laughs> well, anything, any EA Christie building is automatically going to be at the top of my list. Totally. Because <laughs> he was always my favorite. I think I did like four different projects about his buildings really? when I was in school. That's yeah. That's great. I just always, I just always thought they were really interesting from, you know, school buildings and the, all the different firehouses that he yes. did. Mm-hmm. That are a lot of them that are homes now. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I don't know if there's, there's a few that I think they still use like the one on Carrollton, but mm-hmm. a lot of them have been turned into homes and condos and stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah. When it, and whenever I see his name, I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> what's that? Yeah. I know that guy. Yeah. I mean, not really, but you know, <laughs> I know of him. Mm-hmm. So I, I noticed that, you know, you have the Pontchartrain Park is a, a current project mm-hmm. and then but you're also working really closely with the new mayor of the city, mm-hmm. uh, Mayor Cantrell, who was just elected recently. And she has a, a, an eye for preservation. Like that's sort of what she, she did a lot of that after Katrina. And mm-hmm. now she's, she's in the mayor's position. Do you think that it's going to be advantageous to have this type of mayor in the office now to, to move things forward? Absolutely. And I would say that though we're not directly working with the city at the moment, outside of any, the rebuilding together uses some city grants to help restore people's homes to keep them safe at home. But other than that, we're not currently working directly with the city. But if Mayor Cantrell were here right now, she would be thrilled to see our new strategic plan because it really emphasizes community empowerment. And that's what she is about 100%. Mm -hmm. If the community wants it, if the neighborhood wants it, then she wants to help them get there. And that's what we really are emphasizing in our strategic plan. We want to get out into neighborhoods and meet people where they are and bring them practical advice. If, you know, there's one thing we all have in common, and it's that we live in historic homes or we work in a historic building. We are, we are touched by the historic environment here in New Orleans every day, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and living in a historic home can be tough sometimes, you know, and you might have questions that if you moved here from elsewhere... <laughs> Or you just don't know. You wouldn't know how, for example, to wrap your pipes to right. avoid a, a free, you know, during a freeze. Or you might not know what to do if your house floods with an inch of water during a freak rainstorm. These things happen in New Orleans, mm-hmm. and we have to know how to respond to them, what to do. This is all practical advice that we have, and we are going out into neighborhoods and bringing that information to people as part of this new endeavor. We also want to empower people to address concerns they have in their neighborhoods. For example, the 7th Ward with the Valenius Jones School. You know, it's a blighted building in their neighborhood. They want to do something with it, and they reach out to us for help. We want to do that for every neighborhood in the city Mm -hmm. over and over again. We want to be a true resource in that way for the city. So... Mayor Kentrell would love this. Yeah. <laughs> I really think this is right up her alley. Yeah. Um, and she appreciates the history of our city. She knows that this is who we are. This is our brand. Um, this is the soul of who we are. And so um, I'm really thrilled that she's the mayor. I think she's doing an incredible job. And I think that she's going to be proud of some of the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so. Mm-hmm. I, I'm looking forward to see what, what comes next, mm-hmm. not just from her, but from from everything from, from here on out. Mm-hmm. So. so I wanted to... Um, talk about a little bit more in detail about preservation and print, which you talked about earlier. That's that, that's the magazine, um, that the PRC has been publishing almost, almost since its inception in 1975. So you started your work here with preservation and print, I guess as an intern, right? When you Mm -hmm. were in school. Correct. So can you talk about that? Like how, how you got started with that and the different types of things you've been involved with with the magazine since then and then up to now. Yeah. I was so lucky to just happen upon an internship here. I wasn't even planning on interning for Preservation and Print because I'd been a journalist and, you know, I came to grad school to learn new things. But Paige Larg, who was a colleague of mine at the school or another student at the school, yeah, my friend Paige. at the school. Yeah, Paige. Paige, yeah. Paige said, hey, I'm getting an internship with Preservation and Print. You should come do it too because you're a writer. And I thought, okay, well, it might be fun. 
So I did it, and I just adored Mary Fitzpatrick, who was the editor. She just seemed like the coolest lady in the whole wide world. And I very quickly met my 60-hour threshold for the internship and just kept writing because it was fun. It was so fun. You, you know, if you wrote a story, you got an insider's tour of a building. Mm -hmm. You got to meet these people who are passionate about what they were doing. And you got to write about something that was incredibly interesting. So I saw every opportunity to write a story as an opportunity to meet someone interesting or see, you know, get a VIP sneak peek into a building that I would never get to go into otherwise. So it was just really fun. And then... At the end of the MPS program, I think I was a month away from finishing my coursework, Mary called me and said, hey, the assistant editor has just resigned. Would you like her job? And I said, oh my God, yes, I would love her job. That would be so wonderful. So I was really so blessed to work with Mary for three years. She was an inspiring woman, um, so smart. Her wit was just incredible. And I think most importantly of all, she just was so, she just glowed from the inside. She was a joyous, joyful person, and mm -hmm. it, she, it was joyful to work with her. Um, she thought of everything, you know, thought of topics from every angle, and that was so refreshing. Um, and it was just, it was nonstop fun, honestly. The job was so great. I just started by writing stories and kind of advising on the look of the magazine, but very quickly came to designing the magazine as well because mm -hmm. I had experience in graphic design. And so every month I would lay out the magazine and write a bunch of stories and Mary would too. And then very tragically, she passed away suddenly in 2013, mm -hmm. I think New Year's Eve 2013. And it was a really tough time because she was my mentor. She was a very close friend. And it was devastating to lose her. And simultaneously, I didn't want the, ma the magazine to skip a beat because Ma Mary would not have approved of that. <laughs> right. So, you know, in my grieving, I had to also just step up and put the magazine together. And so um, I did that. And I also became a new mom a few months later, which was a challenge too. <laughs> so a lot of things happened at once, but I was the editor of the magazine for three full years and applied for the job of executive director and didn't really think that, you know, that necessarily I would be chosen, but it, I was so in tune with what the organization was and really what we needed because I'd been writing about every department and, you know, really digging in deep with every department head every month to, to communicate to the public what we were doing as an organization. So it made me un uniquely in tune with what was going on in this building. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I was blessed to have a wonderful cadre of friends and contacts outside of this building because of the nature of my job. Mm -hmm. It was my job to know what projects were going on in the city and to report about it. So I got to meet, you know, architects and engineers and designers and just fascinating people across the city um, by reporting on in preservation and print what they were doing. And so um, it did make me put me in a unique spot to apply for the position of executive director. And so now, how much involvement do you have? I know you still write some articles because I see that sometimes. Mm -hmm. are, do you, are you still really involved with it or are you just kind of... No. Yeah. Um, I was so lucky to be approached by a 20-plus year veteran of the Times-Picayune. Uh, Susan Langenhennig Granger was the home and garden editor for many years, the editor of Wish Magazine, and had been reporting at the Times-Picayune in other capacities for over two decades. And... I was so lucky that she wanted to come work here because I wanted her. <laughs> and um, She has already made amazing improvements to the magazine, um, and she's also done an incredible job uh, m 
working with our communications team to double more than double our Instagram following and get great increases in our Facebook and Twitter following as well and really just up the content level the quality of the content rather um, for all of our social media accounts and for our print magazine as well she's doing an incredible job and so I don't need to be that involved yeah <laughs> We well, talk, that's good. Yeah, we talk about what's going in the magazine every month, and then I just let her do her thing because she is a pro. She's excellent at what she does. Yeah. Well, that's good. I have mm-hmm. I have enjoyed the the recent, you know, the recent magazines, and mm-hmm. I've been getting them in the mail forever. But I have noticed sort of like a, a different quality to them recently, mm-hmm. and I kind of I kind of like that. Yeah. Um, has it always been? So they come out nine times a year. Mm-hmm. Has it always been nine times? Or it was ten for part of its life. But being a nonprofit, <laughs> we enjoy the perks of nonprofit life. And so literally we have a break in the winter months. So we we have to all work incredibly hard as an organization to put on the holiday home tour. It's our biggest fundraiser of the right. year and that's every December. And so we take January as a month off for the magazine part in part because of that. And then in the summer months Things die in New Orleans, period. Like everything (laughs) dies. So we have a June issue, but it really acts as our summer issue, and we don't publish issues in July and August. And it really is an important time for us to regroup because we always have so much um, kind of ancillary projects that are going on along the side that might get pushed off and pushed off because we have such tight monthly deadlines with preservation and print. But, you know, we love to produce T-shirts and to do special contests on social media and do – exhibits in the lobby and Mm -hmm. you know we need time to be able to kind of catch up on some of those really important things too so we take the summer months off in order to catch up and launch new things and then we come back every september with more pips so yeah okay i was just curious because i I know like some some groups do like quarterly magazines Mm -hmm. and nine is kind of an odd it's random i know because it's not every other month really yeah yeah okay well that makes sense and uh, yeah i mean you're definitely right about the summertime everybody just hides in the air conditioning (laughs) inside and doesn't do anything around here that's true (laughs) let's talk about the other organizations that the PRC works with here in New Orleans, mm-hmm. then they can be preservation related or not. Can you tell us like some of the other places that you might work with besides, you know, like City Hall, obviously, this is, is like a big one. And um, do you find that building those connections with other groups helps projects get finished and helps you get things done? Yeah, absolutely. Anytime we partner or even coll- just collaborate with an- another group, we're really amazed to see the results that come of that. Tulane is a perfect example. We have long-standing relationships with the School of Architecture, obviously, the preservation program. We put on Preservation Matters Symposia with them every other year. Um, we have other collaborations throughout the year that we do with them, and that's always fruitful. We also have a great relationship with the MSRED program, and um, one of their professors has been working with us on data collection, mm-hmm. um, really looking at statistics in neighborhood historic neighborhoods where real estate prices have rise been rising rapidly and how that's affecting long-term homeowners. Um, So relationships like that are just so important for us. Of course, working with our city council people is of the utmost importance. And then other nonprofit groups, you know, we enjoy wonderful relationships with Louisiana Landmarks, the Historic New Orleans Collection, obviously VC Pora, now that our advocacy coordinator left PRC to become the new executive director of VC Pora, we will continue to have a wonderful relationship with that organization. It's really important, you know, PRC can't do it all and we shouldn't do it all. There are 
lots of amazing organizations doing great work in this city. So we love to partner with other organizations whenever we can so that both of our work can shine together. Mm -hmm. I always like to something I feel like I talk about like in every episode that to harp on the fact that preservation doesn't exist in a vacuum. Exactly. And it's always important to have or, uh, you know, relationships with other groups in the city that cities or surrounding areas of, of where you work. Yeah. One of the, the, new additions to our staff that I'm so excited about is Nathan Lott is joining us as our new advocacy coordinator and public policy director. And for three years now, Nathan has been the director of the Greater New Orleans Water Collaborative. And so we never worked... his name sounded familiar. Yeah. So we never worked directly with the Water Collaborative, but we absolutely have overlapping interests. And so bringing him onto our team is so exciting for me because he brings connections to that whole environmental and climate change world um, to PRC. So I have no doubt that we'll continue to branch out and make, you know, connections in new ways with new organizations with him on board. Mm-hmm. So do you find that people with different backgrounds, this is just not really what I put on the list here, <laughs> but like when, when you're, when you're looking for people to fill positions, do you find that you choose people that have like, like, I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to say here. Like people who are trained in preservation versus people who aren't? Yeah, or people that maybe are trained a little bit but have a background in something else, Mm -hmm. like business or, you know, like you said, environmental stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think those types of people with those skills bring in just more... skills (laughs) skills <laughs> I don't well, know <laughs> I do I mean I'm biased because I'm one of those people I and but that's why I love this field is because so many people come to it from different backgrounds mm-hmm. they come to it with a law degree or a business background or there are surprisingly a lot of English majors <laughs> that enter the preservation field or an art history background or are they were an architect first. I think that that is what makes our field so spectacularly interesting and the people so interesting is because we have this diverse background, all these diverse backgrounds represented. Um, and here at PRC, we have trained preservationists, people with preservation degrees in this organization. We have several of them. But we have several of them who don't as well. And mm-hmm. those people are, their perspective is so, so important. Susan, for example, she had been reporting in her role at the times Picayune on PRC events for years. She'd been reporting on historic homes for years. She, she is so versed in, you know, the vernacular architecture of the city and of the work of the PRC. But she came from a very different world, the, you know, print journalism world. And, and her coming in with that fresh perspective to our mm-hmm. nonprofit world has been awesome. So, yes, I think it helps in amazing ways to have outsiders come into our field and bring their, their unique skills and kind of view of the world to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it. Mm-hmm. And from, you know, a lot of the people that I've talked to, I, I've only actually talked to like one or two people that sort of set out to be preservationists mm-hmm. from the beginning. Really? Everything, <laughs> everyone else has kind of come into it from a different perspective. Yeah. I haven't aired Ashley's interview yet. Well, by the time this interview airs, hers will have aired. Okay. But Ashley... You know, she, she knew, she was like, oh, I knew what I wanted to do since I was like 14 years old. I was like, okay. It must be (laughs) Ashley Gadlip because I've heard that before. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I was like, I wish I had known, you know, at that time, maybe I could have been more. (laughs) You would have saved some time. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. I don't know. You don't, but you don't hear that a lot. You hear different stories, which I think just makes it all the more interesting. Definitely. 
what other types of organizations might you work with outside of New Orleans? Like, do you ever do anything with groups like, say, the Historic Charleston Foundation or other things like those types of groups Mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily based here? Absolutely. One of the most exciting things, honestly, about becoming executive director of the PRC has been access to other executive directors because, you know, every preservation organization is highly specific to their city and their city's needs, but we have so much information to share Mm -hmm. and we have so many overlapping issues and problems that we're seeking to address in our own way. And the National Trust for Historic Preservation for many years hosted, and now they're no longer the host, but they're still nurturing a group called the Partners Network. That is a group of all the executive directors of the kind of city preservation organizations and statewides. Mm-hmm. And we get together several times a year and talk about what we're going through, share ideas, talk about fundraising, talk about, you know, I spoke with the director in Seattle a few weeks ago and he was telling me about how there, there's very little blight in Seattle because, you know, land is so precious. Right. And the city, so many people are moving to Seattle every week. It's shocking. And so, you know, the city is growing um, in land mass and buildings, they're really facing the pressures of density in, for their historic building stocks. So it's just fascinating to talk with other preservation organization leaders about the challenges their cities are facing and to share ideas and to really, yeah, break bread with other people. Mm-hmm. I think Nashville is another one of those cities mm-hmm. that is facing that sort of issue. I, um, you know, my husband's family is from Nashville, so we spend a lot of time up there and mm-hmm. I definitely see that all of the new construction people like moving in mass to mm-hmm. live in Nashville. It's like the new place to be. Mm. And I think they're facing some of those same type of mm-hmm. issues. It's actually something I would, I'm trying to make more connections with preservationists up there to kind of see what's going cool. on. That's great. Yeah, it's been really important for me because the strategic planning process that the PRC undertook in this past year, it was a six-month process, and it was hard (laughs) because the city has changed so dramatically in the past, you know, even in the past decade. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when programs like Operation Comeback and Rebuilding Together were born at the PRC, they were both born in 1988. Mm-hmm. And at that time, there wasn't the population right. to coming into the city to convince people to buy in these historic neighborhoods. And a lot of the historic neighborhoods were still considered scary. Mm-hmm. And the problems that we face as a city, as preservationists now, are so different that we're having to make it up all fresh and new. And that's an amazing opportunity. But it's also, there's a lot that goes into that. And so to be able to talk to these other leaders and get ideas and, and get their feedback on some of our ideas has really been helpful. Yeah, so I think you just answered my next question about (laughs) ideas and inspirations from other groups. There you go. So what is your vision for the future of the Preservation Resource Center? My vision, getting back to what I was saying before about being a resource for people where they're at, my vision is that people will know us will be a household name in a way where everyone will know that we're relevant to their life in some way, whether it's the historic house they live in, whether they want to become a homeowner and, you know, we're creating affordable housing with blight, um, whether they want to save a building in their neighborhood or, or honor a building in their neighborhood, we can go out and cover it in our magazine or on our social media. We want to, we want to honor the monuments to people's everyday life in, in addition to the buildings that we all know are incredible. It's right. not just about Galley or Hall. It's also about the little church in your neighborhood that you grew, you went to growing up. Mm-hmm. That's important too, and we want to write about that and record that history. Mm-hmm. One of the new endeavors that we're undertaking is 
an oral history project. We're calling it the Neighborhood Memory Project. We're already working with people every day, and it's such low-hanging fruit. We should have done it a million years ago, but we're going to do it now where we record and videotape people telling us what it was, was like to grow up in that neighborhood or to you know inherit that house grow up in that house, what their neighborhood was like 30 years ago, um, really record the stories of New Orleans' historic neighborhoods and, and buildings for generations to come to understand where we were and look at where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really exciting. So so it's about the PRC of the future is about being relevant and useful to people, but also honoring who they are and where they've come from in a way that, that they know is about them. Mm-hmm. So I, I imagine you know about the Instagram handle, the Carrolltonian. Yes. Yes. Love that. All all the local neighborhood history that you could want yes, in one it's Instagram amazing. account. Yeah. yeah. I, I love her stuff. And, you know, we live in now that we've, we've been in Carrollton for almost two years now. And so it's nice to see, like, I can just scroll through and be like, I know where that house is. Or, <laughs> you know, and then I can drive by and be like, husband, let me tell you about this who used to live yeah. in this house or yeah. it used to be at a grocery store or different things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get her on the podcast. She's so busy. Really? She's like the busiest person. Really? Um, she's got a couple of jobs and she does, she works really hard on this Instagram and I keep hounding her. I'm going to get her on here one day. <laughs> it's going to happen. I just, totally. I, I just have to keep, you know, I keep following up with her. <laughs> but she would be like, I don't know if you guys have reached out for her or something like that, but she would be perfect for that. Kind she of really project. would. Because that's basically what she already does. Yes. is like archiving the neighborhood history. Mm -hmm. And it kind of goes back to the previous episode I had where I interviewed Jennifer Hance Mm -hmm. about like social media being almost an informal archive for mm-hmm. things now. Totally. Great point. For pictures and things that people are sharing, you you already see stuff that's disappeared that has been saved on social media. Yeah. And it and it is and it's almost like an archives because it is searchable with hashtags and mm-hmm. it is you know, you can find those things. You know, obviously it's not peer reviewed or anything, so you kinda have to take the information with a grain of salt and hope that it's true. But right. it, it is another place for those things to be stored and shared, yeah. which is which is really interesting. Great point. So I did want to ask you about the Canal Street Project. Yes. I know that's the next sort of big thing that's coming up yeah. with the PRC. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. In the same vein of helping people, you know, realize the best futures for the historic buildings that they care about, we've launched an effort called Canal Street Catalyst to really help figure out how to revitalize the long, empty upper floors on the buildings on Canal Street. It is amazing the square footage of empty, empty, empty square footage Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, buildings on Canal. And a lot of it has come back. Um, There's some really exciting new projects like the Hosteling International that Mm -hmm. has um, connected the old Fishers building with the building next door to it. um, And it's going to open in coming months. That's really exciting and we see that that some other buildings like the Sandlin building are being revitalized right now as well so it's great there's definitely there's things happening on canal but there's problem buildings that aren't going to have aren't going to get revitalized really unless someone like us a nonprofit who doesn't have necessarily profit as the motivator but wants to do the right thing mm-hmm. unless we come in and help broker these deals it's not going to happen And it's because some of these buildings are owned by a family that has 15 different members who have to, you know, all agree. Or the buildings themselves are too narrow to really do anything in them that makes sense financially. So you'd have to figure out how to get three different building owners at a a table to agree Mm -hmm. to connect their buildings and, you know, 
develop them together. That sort of thing takes time and it takes nurturing and it really, you know, it's something that only only an entity like PRC could really do mm-hmm. um, because it's not the promise of a quick book. It's the right. long game, but yeah. but we're excited about playing that long game. And so we are actively talking to building owners on Canal Street, and we're very close to getting our first project, which is so exciting. And we really see that this is going to be a, a big way that Canal Street does come back fully revitalized. We already know that the Matwani family has signed with Sonder to revitalize a lot of their buildings on Canal Street with with their short-term rentals. I think on Canal Street, actually, Sonder is operating those rooms as hotels, okay. essentially. They have mm-hmm. hotel licenses. So it's like hotels. And so it'll be interesting when we do sign with some building owners to see, to do the numbers, to do the market analyses and say, okay, what is the best and highest use of these upper floors? Because that's what we can bring to the table in our approach. We are not being dictated by a presupposed use at the end of the day. Right. We're not saying, okay, work with us and we'll figure out how to make your buildings hotels. No, what we're doing is we're saying, work with us. We're going to do market analysis and really do the, the due diligence to figure out what is the best and highest use for this square footage. And keeping in mind, you know, the, the building owners need to make a profit, of course, obviously. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. But hopefully we can find a way to, to redevelop the upper floors in a way that makes the building owners the most profit that they can get, but also contributes to a healthy ecosystem on Canal Street. Right. Because if it's just all hotel rooms, that's one thing. But if you are able to have a balance of hotel rooms and residences and office space and doctor's offices and, you know, lawyer's offices, then you have more of a Canal Street of days past where people have a myriad of reasons to come down to Canal Street. Mm -hmm. And that would make for a more vibrant and sustainable commercial corridor. Yeah. And I can imagine that a major hurdle would be parking. Yes. For that area. Yes, absolutely. And that's when working with other community groups to really promote something like public transportation. So, for example, working with Ride NOLA would be an interesting, you know, opportunity for us moving forward in this project. Because, yes, unless you take the streetcar or take an Uber, half the battle is finding parking. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so if you don't mind, I'd also like to talk about one other endeavor that's new sure. that we're undertaking as part of our strategic plan, which is we're calling our micro grants program. Um, one of the issues that we have been witnessing in recent years is a multitude of low-income homeowners who live in historic districts who are being cited by the city for fines or they're given, being given fines for violations on their historic buildings mm-hmm. because they have bought new windows or new doors from you know a hardware store that don't met, meet HDLC requirements right or they their building their home is falling apart in certain ways and so they get a citation and when this happens if they are low income they have no way to pay for the building repairs right so they go to the city and they say I'm sorry I you know I get that you're finding me but I can't pay you and so really all the HDLC has been able to do it until this point is just say okay well we'll give you another 12 months to fix it and you can just come back but kind of full well knowing I think my, my assumption would be that they know that it's not going to happen because the homeowners don't have the means to do it right so it's just it's been kind of a stalemate of this perennial problem where historic districts are really important but not everyone can follow the guidelines or meet the guidelines mm-hmm. and 
the PRC has been really concerned about this because if we want to promote historic districts, which we do, they're incredibly important. But if we also want to acknowledge that the people who have lived there for generations should be allowed to stay there, whether they can afford to meet the historic district guidelines or not. Right. You know, if we talk about preserving the authenticity of this place, preserving its culture, that's about keeping residents where they are. Where they are. Yes. Um, we want to be able to step in and help. So we're piloting a new program where we will be working with the HDLC directly, working with low-income homeowners to figure out ways to pay for these repairs. It's kind of a Band-Aid program. We really hope that in the future we'll be working with the HDLC to figure out you know, ways that we can alleviate these problems on a grander scale. Maybe it's by working with companies like, I think it's called Artemis. I don't know if that's exactly it, but they're making shutters and other um, building components out of materials that are weather resistant and the HGLC has approved them and oh, they're okay. cheaper, like okay. way cheaper than wood milled stuff. Right. So that that's part of the solution going forward for sure. Mm-hmm. But for now, how can we help low income homeowners in historic districts um, fix their homes and get the fines off of their back. And mm-hmm. so what we're really hoping is that if we work with the HTLC to repair these people's homes, that their city fines will be forgiven and that they don't have to worry anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really important part of, of what we're going to be doing moving forward. Yeah, that sounds like a really excellent program. Thanks. Is that, do you know if any other city has implemented something similar? Or? I don't think that they have. Okay. And so actually the National Trust for Historic Preservation awarded us a grant, an oh, innovation okay. grant. Um, we pitched this idea to them and they loved it. Yeah. So I'm really proud of that. And I'm really excited that we could be piloting this new endeavor here in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really that's a really great program. I know some of that was mentioned at the at the symposium. There mm-hmm. was some talk about the HDLC and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I've heard stories from people that that it, it can be restrictive, especially if you don't know the guidelines and, right. or you're not aware. Right, exactly. And then you have this guy from the HDLC knocking <laughs> down your door. Exactly. <laughs> like um, that is not what you want. Yeah. These windows aren't right. Uh, oh, okay. And it's especially heartbreaking because some, you know, if you truly don't know, then you spent all this money for new windows, and then you're being told to replace them again <laughs> with other new windows. You know, right. it's just it's a it's a really tough situation. So, I'm excited that we might be able to come in and help. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. That yeah. sounds really good. Yeah. Let's see. Let's talk about your work at Tulane. Yeah. So you are also an adjunct professor in mm-hmm. the Master's of Preservation program at Tulane, mm-hmm. teaching advocacy. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing that for what, like four years now? Mm-hmm. I think this was my fifth year, yeah. Okay. So can you talk about that, like how it came about and kind of what you talk about in the... Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was a student in the program, we had a course where we literally got three credit hours just for attending the National Trust Conference. Mm-hmm. And after I graduated from the program, as I was working full-time at PRC, I was moonlighting for the MPS program as uh, the director, John Stubbs, program assistant. And so um, I'd help him with kind of um, paperwork and sending out emails to students and alumni and that sort of thing. And after a few years, we started talking about that those three credit hours and how they could be better put to better use. Mm-hmm. Three credit hours is a lot. Yeah, <laughs> and so it's a whole class. It's a whole class. And so to just get all that credit for just attending a three-day conference seemed kind of like a missed opportunity to us. So he asked me to develop a course um, 
called Preservation Advocacy, and I was thrilled for the opportunity because what I was able to do is take all the connections I'd made reporting on the preservation world here in New Orleans and put them to academic use. And so I structured a class where the students could see how preservation happened in real life and in real time. And so throughout the course of the semester, we visit preservation practitioners on every level from grassroots activists to people who are working in city hall and at the shippo to people at non various nonprofits around the city to for-profit developers um, really looking at the myriad of ways that people save buildings and myriad of reasons that people save buildings mm-hmm. and the idea is that something is going to turn these students on <laughs> and so I follow up I follow that up with the internship So I'm the internship advisor as well for students. So they take my course in the fall, and then in the spring, I meet with them individually to set up their spring internship. And inevitably, something about the class in the fall they liked or didn't like, and it informs how they want to move forward in their exploration of the field. Mm -hmm. There have been a lot of changes to the program that sound very exciting, Mm -hmm. Um, like this class and the one that Ashley teaches the the GIS and just really interesting stuff that kind of almost makes me want to go back and like do it all over again because I'm like oh, I'm yeah, sure they'd love that. that I know well I don't know if my bank account can handle that but there's so there's so so many changes that have been made so yes. much interesting stuff that's yeah. going on now that I'm like oh man I wish we had had that mm-hmm. you know or just something even just a small part of something similar to that because mm-hmm. I, I really didn't have any any direction with my internship stuff, you know, and it would have been helpful to have somebody Mm -hmm. there to help me and sort of guide me in what I was looking for. So yeah, that sounds like a really great class. I'm really glad that that sort of stuff is is now being offered to people. I'm going to try to get um, John on here to talk Good. about the program because I think he it's would important. love it. Yeah. Oh my I'm gosh. Sure he would. Yeah. <laughs> He'd love it. All right. So Speaking of advocacy, since since you teach this course, I'm, I'm assuming that you think it's important that advocacy is included in preservation education. Of course. So you think that's something that, it, I, I guess even if you're maybe not, you don't have a master's degree, or maybe if you're not in school, if there's a way that you could take maybe a community class about advocacy, you think that's something that people, it would benefit preservationists to sort of go after even if maybe they're already past school? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the courses that or the classes and workshops and lecture series that we offer here at the PRC aim to do exactly that mm-hmm. because you can be an advocate in so many ways. You know, Jen Hans is an advocate right. by by bringing awareness of the beauty of these historic buildings to such a wide audience just in the same way as Aaron Holmes now is the new executive director of VC Pora is an advocate literally going to city hall and making sure buildings in the French quarter don't get bastardized, you know? Um, So it can take on so many different forms and people are advocates, even if they don't know it. And so just, but just bringing to light this kind of reality, Hey, do you like these, these historic buildings? Do you like shopping on magazine street? Do you like going out to eat in the, in the CBD? Right. You know, you do, you're a preservationist yeah. and you know, by doing all those things, you are advocating for the continuation of our city, our mm-hmm. historic city. Mm-hmm. So just bringing, kind of putting a name to that face essentially is a really important job for us to do as mm-hmm. preservationists. Mm-hmm. As someone who's been involved in the promotion of preservation through journalism, mm-hmm. basically since the beginning, <laughs> even without meaning to, um, how have you seen it changed or be influenced by journalism and social media? 
Well, I think only in good ways, honestly. I think that the rise of Instagram has been a natural uh, medium for preservationists because what we save is so visually interesting <laughs> yeah. that it has been a great way for us to capture audiences and inform them of the work we're doing and kind of get them on board with who we are and what we care about and then they care about it too. Mm-hmm. So I think that social media especially has really presented us with wonderful opportunities to grow as a field. And in terms of journalism, with PIP, we really kind of trick people into liking us. <laughs> You know, we have historic restaurant reviews Mm -hmm. and we have profiles of amazing places that have been newly renovated where our February issue is going to feature Hotel Peter and Paul and the Marini, which is absolutely stunningly beautiful. And it's going to be on the cover and someone's going to pick it up because they see this picture and they're like, wow, what is this place? And they're going to start reading it, not knowing maybe that they're reading a preservation magazine, but they'll care and they'll be into it. And then we would have tricked them into liking who, liking us and liking what we're doing and and reading, you know, reading what we have to say. So I think that it's a really important way for us to communicate to everyone and not just to ourselves as Mm -hmm. practitioners, which is so often the problem is that we're preaching to the choir so much of the time. Our outlets for social media and for print, our print journalism is a really important way to, to, um, to get our word out to the general public. So let's talk about my favorite thing now to ask people. (laughs) Okay. And that is what is your favorite thing about preservation? And then what's your least favorite thing? Okay. Well, gosh, I I have several possible answers. I love people's passion for their places. Mm-hmm. It's it's so inspiring. It's part of what was such a joy of being a reporter for Preservation in Print was every project, every homeowner, you know, homeowners, low-income homeowners whose home we're fixing through rebuilding together, you know, they might have some serious problems with their houses, but they are still so proud of their home. You know, right. buildings on every level, people love them, have passion for them, have passion for their history and their family's history through those buildings. And that is so wonderful to see. It's so inspiring. It's endlessly inspiring to see people's passion and love for the places they care about. And so seeing that and then being able to elevate those stories through the work we're doing is such a joy for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess that's my answer. Okay. (laughs) What would be your least favorite thing? Or um, do you have a pet peeve? This is going to get me in trouble. But (laughs) (laughs) the the kind of bureaucracy of it really drags me down sometimes. And it's frustrating to have to kind of go through some of the, I don't even know how to put it, but... Red uh, tape? Yeah. Yeah. Having to weed through the red tape and go through processes sometimes is really frustrating to me. I mean, having to example, for example, write a letter to, to the park service for the section 106 review, mm-hmm. when there is a house that's trying to be demolished, when I'm just like, just save the house. It's an amazing <laughs> house. What's the problem here? But right. now you've got to go through all the steps for, you know, yeah. to try and get to that point. And so that can be kind of frustrating for me. <laughs> yeah. And then having, and then people's frustration with that is really hard for me to handle too because I don't have any way of refuting that, right? So, I mean, there was a building where on O.C. Haley where the owner was denied historic tax credits because she wanted to restore it to its original, original look Mm -hmm. Um, and the Park Service wanted her to keep the mid-century facade that had been applied to the building. Okay. And she was endlessly, you know, 
angry about that and right. frustrated by that. And I don't blame her. Yeah. I, you know, there's some instances where, you know, you can see both sides to it, but at the end of the day, people are PO'd about it. <laughs> You're like, I'm sorry. I know. I don't know what to say. You yeah. know, sometimes this stuff just happens because we have to follow certain rules and, you know, you can't bend the rules, but sometimes you really want to bend the rules. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of gray in this field and, and you, the black and white is important, but it also frustrates me. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. And I feel like those those floating facades on those old buildings are, are a point of like endless contention. They like are. where does it become part of the fabric versus mm-hmm. wanting to take it off like she wanted to do? That's something yeah. that I feel like is sort of always, always probably going to be an issue. It is. I mean, with buildings like the Pythian Temple, it is so obvious. I mean, that... That mid-century modern facade was hideous. Yeah. I mean, it, and now it is incredibly beautiful once they've restored the building as it originally looked like. That's a no-brainer. But the Sandlin building, you know, PRC wrote a letter of support in, in favor of taking down that the historic facade, the mid-century facade. Mm-hmm. But I even had colleagues who said, oh, but I love that big S. It's so <laughs> yeah. cool, you know, and it is cool. But but what's cooler, that or the the original building underneath, you know, so it's hard. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's ever going to be a good answer to that I particular don't think so question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So finally, do you have any advice for someone looking to get into preservation? Yeah, I guess in the same way that I advise my students, I would just invite them to explore all the many, many ways that you can be a preservationist. The profession takes on so very many facets and fields, and you can make a difference in so many different ways. And so it's it's a journey figuring out where you want to go. Mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, intern or volunteer or just talk to as many people as you can about how they do what they do because preservation can be hard mm-hmm. you know especially if you are directly advocating for historic structures there's going to be a lot of losses there'll be important wins but you have to you have to get up the next day after a loss and keep fighting for what you can fight for and and that takes it takes grit yeah. you know and so you need to go into the field with eyes wide open and so doing your due diligence about how exactly the field will best fit you, I think is an important, important thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've heard that a little bit of that advice maybe earlier on a different episode, mm-hmm. kind of trying out different things to see what best matches your personality mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. I can definitely understand that because mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not a big like people person. Mm-hmm. And so doing the contacts and the meetings and making, you know, those connections is difficult for me, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things that I have to constantly work on because otherwise I wouldn't be able to do this, yeah, you know? Absolutely. So yeah, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's it for today. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This was so fun. Sure. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guest's information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.